help for others even. Well, let's go ahead, go ahead now and um, uh, go over to Romans chapter 8. And we have been going through Romans chapter 8. Uh, this now makes uh, eight Wednesdays <laughs> that we have been trying to get through this chapter. Um, and we're not going to finish tonight. I've, I, I plan on getting four verses in um, because it, the ending of, of Romans 8 is... Uh, is honestly too good to just try to squeeze in and rush through. Uh, we're going to do verse 31 through verse uh, number 34 tonight, and then we'll finish out 35 to 39, uh, Lord willing, next Wednesday. But, uh, but as we are looking here at Romans uh, chapter 8, just a quick reminder, uh, we said that uh, in, in, in my personal study and looking at it, if I was to define uh, myself as to what a theme would be for this chapter uh, as a whole, though it covers many different aspects of the Christian life especially, but as a whole, the theme of Romans 8, uh, I would personally say, is the security of Christ in us through the Spirit. And uh, it is just, it's reiterated over and over and over again in many different ways and aspects of how Paul is presenting these truths. But uh, we are secure uh, through Christ who is in us uh, through the Spirit of God. And so um, we said that also the key verses, we're not going to read them tonight, but key verses for, for this that kind of describe um, that theme and kind of wrap everything up. If you could only read two verses out of the whole chapter, you'd get a pretty good understanding of it by verse number 15 and verse number 16 in that chapter. I'm not going to read that right now because we, I want to get straight on into the four verses we're going to look at tonight and, uh, and be timely on this, uh, this evening. But uh, we have already looked and said if you break down Romans, you actually can break it down into four segments uh, in Romans chapter 8. And uh, the first segment of Romans 8 would, uh, would be um, life uh, in the Spirit, or the Spirit of God, life through the Spirit of God. And uh, verse 1 through verse number 11 covers that. And then um, the second breakdown would be verse 12 to verse number 17, uh, where uh, Paul is explaining the understanding of debtors being made heirs. And we are debtors, but we are made heirs of God through Christ, and so, and joint heirs with Christ. And then the third area that we spend a good bit of time in is uh, verse 18 through verse number 30, where we dealt with the, the anticipation of the promised glory, what God has promised, what the child of God looks forward to. Uh, I will lay these out very quickly, the main, main areas of this third section of verse 18 to verse number 30, we looked at the comparison of present situation and future glorification, the fact that our sufferings can't compare to God's promise. And uh, the creature, we saw the creature and the creator um, through verse 19 and 20, through 21. Uh, and then we looked at and, and saw in verse number 22 and 23, the evidence of the curse of sin presented by Paul and just how, how it's, it's visible that all of the entire earth uh, groans and the entire earth um, it suffers 
because of sin, the child of God also suffers. Just because you get saved doesn't mean that all of a sudden everything is wonderful and hunky-dory. There's going to be still suffering. But we look for the redemption of the body through the rapture. Then, uh, then we saw in verse 24 and 25, um, Paul answers the question of what is hope, presenting the reality of hope and the result of hope. Not going to recover all that, but uh, that's in verse number 24 25. Verse number 26, 27, and 28, those are th- three very enjoyable verses to teach on. Um, but uh, we, we see our helper, our intercessor, and our confidence presented to us in verse number 26, 27, and 28 uh, for the child of God. Then uh, we saw lastly in the third section there, uh, verse number 29 through verse number 30, the, um, we see the purpose found, our purpose found in God's preeminence. And, uh, and I wanna, wanted to give all of that because especially verse number 29 uh, well, I should say verse number 26 all the way through, but uh, verse number 30. But when you look at 28 especially, uh, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. We said th- this is a promise to the child of God. It's not just a promise to anybody out there that says, oh, yes, I believe God is good. Oh, I believe God loves me. That, that doesn't really count in this. It's talking about someone who is a child of God, God, one one who has been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, and and that's the whole point of uh, to them that love God. Well, I mean, if you're his child, you ought to love him. People can like the idea of God doesn't mean they're a child of God. Uh, People can like the idea of being called a Christian doesn't mean that they're a true child of God. And so uh, this ultimately is a promise not just to anyone out there that claims um, and professes to have something. It is a promise given to those who truly possess the forgiveness of sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and so that's verse number 28, knowing that all things work together for good. But then verse number 29 uh, and, and verse number 30 gave very specific aspects of the purpose that God has preordained for everyone that receives Christ as their Savior, he has not predestined salvation. He has predestined what a saved individual is to become. And therefore, uh, those that are predestined is concerning everyone that is a whosoever. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. At the moment that you become a whosoever that calls upon the name of the Lord, receives salvation, instantly you have been labeled and placed into the category of God has predestined you to a purpose. And that purpose is seen for whom he did foreknow, which again, there's God's knowledge, his, his, his understanding of things. He already knew that you would receive Christ as your Savior. It, it goes beyond our understanding. I'm not going to rehash all of that. But whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate not to be saved, but to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate to be conformed to the image, whom he did predestinate, them he also called or welcomed in. Once He wants to sup with them. He wants to fellowship with them. He is, he is calling. He is beckoning. Hey, come sit at the table. 
And, uh, and so whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, uh, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. And, uh, and so God has a purpose. He has a prescription plan of what he wants to accomplish and what he plans to do with every child of God. Now, you see all of that leading into verse number 31. And that's why I wanted to reiterate some of that from 28 uh, to verse 30, because he's covered all these things, and now he comes down to um, this this final aspect. You might say the the final sectioning uh, of Romans 8, and that is verse number 31 to verse number 39 to close out this particular chapter, or in the letter he's writing to close out that particular section of the letter um, as it's broken down here. But in this, uh, I'll give you this, the fourth section of breakdown for Romans 8, which is that verse number 31 to verse number 39, um, you can give it the heading of God's everlasting love. It, 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 it's all about understanding what it is to be in the arms and protected by and held in the love of God for, the, as a, for a child of God, okay, as a child of God. So uh, again, I, I'm not, we're not going to get past uh, verse number 34, but I want to look at verse number 31 to verse number 34 um, in this, this last sectioning of Romans 8. Uh, if you want to break it down in, in um, a um, written format, letter A, Underneath this fourth section would be, letter A would be the conclusion of the matter. And, uh, and so looking at verse number 31, uh, Paul, after saying all that he said up to this point, uh, and especially verse number 28, 29, and 30, he comes to verse number, th- th- this sectioning here in verses, and we see verse number 31, what shall we say, uh, what shall we then say to these things? What things? to all that we've just covered, (laughs) to all that we've just talked about, to all the things concerning, uh, for we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to to his purpose, to all the matter of the knowledge that for those whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. What do we say about all these things concerning what we face in life, the, the struggles of life, and also what we know as far as the security within being a child of God. Who secures that? Who takes care of that? Uh, who does the work that we're just talking about that God did foreknow? He did predestinate. He, he calls, as we mentioned last time, is that, uh, that, that statement is as calling to the table, the calling of fellowship. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And all you got to do is open up each day and he wants to fellowship with his children, with his church. And therefore, if we will let him in, he will fellowship with us and, and, and we with him. And all of these things, uh, the purpose that God has for us, uh, no matter what the sufferings that we face, it all is going to work together because God's in control of it. He's already predestined that we be conformed to the image of his son. He's already planned and and already um, uh, accomplished that which he has predetermined and designed that he would justify, that he would glorify. And all these things, when you bring it all together, 
Paul just says, okay, now all of this put together, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, what, he, what he's dealing with and what he's getting to is not just, that we love to use that verse when it comes to somebody attacking us verbally or attacking us and trying to stop this and stop that. Oh, if God be for us, who could be against us? Okay, we love using it when it comes to um, head-on collisions with irritating people and irritating situations. But as a whole, you have to understand the context of what he's really trying to um, uh, assert and, and give uh, confidence in here. He's trying to give, and he's, he's purposefully looking to give confidence in the conclusion of the whole matter of these two things, ultimately in verse number 31, and, and, and then also verse number 32. Who can defeat God's people with God on our side? Okay, so who can come against, who can defeat, who can stop God's, basically, the God, God's predetermined purpose for your life? Who is it that can actually interfere with God's predetermined purpose. If God be for you, who can be against you? If God has determined that you be conformed to his son, who is it that's going to, if you are focused on him and you are set on him and you and I are, are, are fellowshipping with him as he desires, who is it that can, and we'll find out in a minute, not, not right now, but again, that's why I don't want, I can't give it all tonight. But later on, he, he, he goes even deeper talking about who can separate us. And so he, he's dealing with it. If God be for us, who can be against us? If God has predetermined what he wants to accomplish, who's going to stop it? If you're focused on him and you're seeking uh, to, to, to be fed by your heavenly father and you're seeking uh, to be given the water that he offers and the bread that he offers and, and if you're, you're hungry and thirsty and you're gleaning from him and you're, you're searching for him and you're following him, who is it that's going to be able to stop what he wants to accomplish when I'm set on him? No one's going to stop it. When I'm set on the one who makes the predeterminations of what needs to happen, when my eyes are fixed on him and his plan will be accomplished when I am fixed on him, who is it that's going to stop it? No one. So it's not just a matter of saying, well, I'm on God's side and God's on my side. Ain't nobody going to get in my way because I will not be stopped. That's not really what it's all about. It's dealing with as I walk with him and as he walks with me, and no matter what I face in this life, no matter what goes on, I know he has a plan. He's already set it in motion. And if I will just follow him and the footsteps in which he leads, there is no one who can stop what God intends to do in my life and through my life if I stay focused on him. That's what he's dealing with. What shall we say to these, then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Then it, he, he goes a little bit further and he says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He's not focused here on saying God will give you everything you want. God's going to give you everything you expect. 
No, what he's saying is, if God would not spare his own son to bring to us the salvation we needed, how can we even imagine or think that if he wouldn't spare his own son to bring salvation, that he would later then uh, refuse to give that which we need as we walk with him and as we grow in him? How can we think that God would send his son and give his only begotten son to die for my sin and then look at me and say, all right, good luck. You're on your own now. I'm not helping you anymore. Well, if he'd give the ultimate sacrifice, how is it that he would not also give me all things that are needed to accomplish his predetermined purpose? For me as a child of God. So he's saying, all this considered, if God be for us, who can be against us? And when you consider that he spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he, God, not with him, his son, also freely give us all things, all necessities, Everything that, that, that we're going to need, regardless of what we face in life, regardless of, of, of what somebody, well, I just don't think you shouldn't expect God to help you and give you this and give you. Well, listen, if he's predetermined to use me in an area of this life that I personally am not equipped for in and of myself, he's going to have to give me some equipping for me to accomplish it. And if he would give his son to die for me for salvation, why would he then withhold what I need to be equipped to be what he has determined for me to be as his child. It just doesn't make sense. Paul's saying you get some confidence right there that, by, by the way, who, who can defeat, defeat God's people or stop God's people or resist God's purpose for his people with God on their side, with God on, a, on our side as his people. But here is, here's what you get from 32. God's past actions give hope in his future promises. If he wouldn't spare his son, how in the world would I think that he would fail to give me what I would need as his child to serve him? The ultimate sacrifice was his son giving me all things that I need to do what he intends and desires for me to do is pretty much just, if I can look back and see what he already has done, I have no problem trusting that he's going to keep his promise about what he will do. Then here's the last, and, and, and we're done. We got two verses right there. Woohoo! Moving along. Verse 33 and 34. Uh, this would be letter B, so that letter A was the conclusion of the matter. Now, technically, all this kind of concludes, but those two thoughts right there are major conclusions of the previous verses. But then also, letter B, the security of his keeping, God's keeping. Here comes the security of the believer once again. Verse number 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Now, again, God's elect is not talking about his forechosen salvation, it's God's elect. In other words, if you are saved, you are whosoever, you are part of God's elect. You are special to him. 
because you are his child. All of mankind, he loves all of mankind, but those who have given their heart and their life to Christ, those who have received the forgiveness of sins, those who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb, those who have been justified and glorified in the eyes of the Father, they are now of a special kind because they're part of the family. And therefore, whosoevers who receive Christ as their Savior become part of the family, they are God's elect. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Now, you say, what is this talking about? He's dealing with those that would say, yeah, no, uh, uh, no, I don't think you actually are saved. Because, Because I know the kind of person you are. Oh, I've seen you slip here. Oh, I've seen you do that there. I'm going to say, as far as I'm concerned, you're not saved. I'm going to say whether or not you meant it. I'm going to say whether or not it took. I'm going to say whether or not. Now, listen, are we to be fruit inspectors to a degree? Well, yeah, by, by their fruit, you shall know them. But it's not, it is not up to me to determine whether or not somebody is actually saved. Whether or not they are, now I, I might have my doubts about some individuals, which should lead me to want to pray more for them because if they truly are trusting in a false security of salvation, then there is a serious need for the, the scales to fall off the eyes and for them to see that they are trusting in something other than a true understanding of Christ as their Savior and being washed by the blood of the Lamb. And if they truly are not saved and all they have is a profession, but they have no possession of forgiveness of sins, then there is a need for me to have them on a top of a prayer list, Lord, if they don't know you as their Savior, Lord, if it's just professing it, if it's just claiming it, but they don't actually have genuine salvation because they have not truly received the forgiveness of sins according to God's plan, Lord, if that is the case, would you please show them the illusion that they are falling for? Show them the reality of their need of truly receiving Christ and Christ alone as their Savior. Now, it is not up to me to say they are not saved. The only one that truly knows and can determine that is God, and the only one that, when honest with themselves, is going to be assured with security and peace of knowing or the struggle of not being sure. The only one who's going to have that is the individual. The only one who's going to know the difference is God. So therefore, it's between them and God whether or not they are saved. Now, does that mean that we can be saved and live however we want to and it's nobody's business? That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there is a responsibility to show that which is on the inside. And if what I show on the outside does not reflect that which I claim to be on the inside, one of two truths is possible. Number one, What I claim to be on the inside is not even there. Or number two, I am so backslidden that I'm grieving the Spirit of God that's trying to do a work in my life and I have become a reproach to the cause of Christ, which is dangerous territory for a child of God. So, as a whole, what he's saying here, the security of his keeping, it is God that justifieth. 
Who, what, what, what uh, verse number uh, 32, uh, no, sorry, 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who is it that's going to say, oh, no, no, they didn't get it. They're not forgiven. They're not actually saved. It is God that justifieth. I didn't save him in the first place. I might have shared the truth with him, but I'm not the one that saved him. God's the one who justifies. By the way, in the end, when it's all said and done, there's no man, no human being that's going to answer to me as to whether or not they were saved. They're going to answer before God. Now, we'll be, to a degree, we are witnesses of whether or not it showed. But God doesn't need our witness to know it already. And so therefore, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth, verse number 34. So it is God that justifieth, it is Christ that paid the price. Verse number 34. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who is he that condemneth? What he's saying is, Paul's just looking, and he's looking at a self-righteous crowd. He is dealing with uh, the church, yes, the saved, yes, but he knows, as we said before in Romans, he knows he's dealing with a very religious group that's also present, and he's going he's going ahead and just laying it down. One of the biggest problems uh, with with Judaism and one of the biggest problems with especially within the temple and the priests and all of that time frame, the Levites and the priests and all the different ones was they were so stuck on themselves that they were able to to pass the judgment and whether or not someone was saved or, or, or whether or not they were of God or whether or not, honestly, they could be condemned by man. And so therefore you have those of the religious crowd that Paul very quickly, easily puts down and says, don't, don't be afraid of those that want to pass judgment and say, you're not good enough. You didn't do it right enough. You didn't get enough of it. It didn't take fully for you because I, I personally know that, that you're, you're not living the kind of life that lives up to, to this or lives up to that. You are condemned in my eyes. Well, who? again, I'm not trying to just kind of tiptoe around things or I'm not trying to, to make a whitewash of stuff. But it is true, though it is misused sometimes, but it is true. Who am I? To pass a condemnation. Amen. Now, don't get me wrong. I can take scripture and I can take what the Bible says should be visible for a child of God. And I can say by the discernment of scripture, something doesn't feel or look right in the life of that one that claims to be a child of God. And by scripture, I can say something is not right. Now understand, for every time that I use the scripture to point out a problem elsewhere, I also have to remember this book is a mirror that shows me that I'm in the same, same state, maybe different issues, but I have some of the same problems. So while I want to pass out and say, that doesn't look right, I also have to look and say, ooh. Ew, neither does that. Oh, my goodness. That, 
I need to work on that one too. I need to work on it. By the way, the whole point is if I can see in others, by the way, it, 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 oh, I got I to be finished. I, I'm going to get too deep on this one, but it is a struggle because it is a delicate balance of, of having discernment of truth. And if you've got discernment and you've got truth and you learn to discern, you're going to see some things that will bother you and other people that call themselves Christians. Just get used to it. You're going to see some things and you're going to, and, and, and discernment's going to say, that doesn't really line up with Scripture. But at the same time, the Holy Spirit has to be able to look and say, yes. And, and by the way, you see that in others, but, I, but you need to be aware. What you see in others so easily is more often than not, what if I'll look, if I'll look at the mirror? <laughs> the most obvious things that I find in others are typically the most obvious things that I struggle with myself. What I catch so fast is because I deal with it. And so I see it. It's kind of like that vehicle that you've never seen before. And then you go shopping. And then all of a sudden you see this vehicle. Oh, I love this vehicle. Man, I, I, I've never seen this vehicle before. So you decide to buy it. Next thing you know, you look around. Everybody's got one. Why does everybody have one? Because I'm now made aware of it. it that which I have, I see everywhere. Same thing is true when it comes to the struggle of the flesh. That which I see as a problem in everybody else, what becomes the biggest thing that catches my eye is oftentimes the reason for it is because it's the biggest thing I battle with myself. And if, if nothing else, God uses sometimes those things, not that we condemn others, but number one, he, he uses it that we might be drawn to pray for others. And number two, he'll use it that we might be drawn to see and say, Lord, am I having that problem too? But as a whole, what Paul is saying is, who is it that can, that can condemn? Who are we to, con to fully condemn, not discern problems, but who am I to condemn and say, you're not living up to being a Christian, I'm pretty sure you're just not saved. Who am I to condemn someone? Did I die for them? Was I buried? Did I rise again? Am I seated at the right hand of the Father? Do I, am I the one that makes intercession? No. I can discern it through Scripture. It can bother me as a child of God to see others who claim to be a child of God not representing that, that, uh, that status very well. It can concern me, but it is to draw me to be in prayer for that individual and it's to draw me to say, Lord, search me. Show me. Because if I'm seeing things in others, there's probably others seeing things in me too. Help me to cleanse the lens of my life so that your light can shine. Paul's whole purpose there. It is not to say we're not to judge. That's a whole nother big, big can of worms that I can get on. The Bible actually does command us to judge, but to judge righteously according to this book. But judgment is not condemnation. Sometimes we call, what we, what we call judgment, what we, I'm just judging what's there. No, we're condemning. And saying God can't use them. 
He can't use what's in the way, but he, if they're a child of God, he does want to use them. So therefore, who is it that can condemn a child of God? Who is it that can, that can claim you don't have salvation? Did I die for them? Did I pay the price? Am I seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession? No, that ain't me. Therefore, I can discern, but I have no right to condemn. I must present truth, and I need to pray. But the best thing I can do is be a light that I should be as a child of God and be there to assist those that are struggling in any way that God gives me the ability to assist. And so I need to stop right there. Um, we'll, we'll get more. It, it, Romans 8, it, it goes, oh, goodness gracious. Verse number 35 on is, um, it just gets exciting again because he just keeps reiterating over and over and over again the security within Christ, the security of being held, not my salvation in me, not my salvation in somebody's confidence in me being saved. It's my salvation held and taken care of and secured by God himself. He's the one who justifies. He's the one who, who takes care of his and, 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 and seals his children. He over and over and over and over and over again is dealing with, and verse number five goes into who can separate us from the love of God. He's so big, he's so strong. Who is it that can condemn and say, nope, you're separated, God doesn't love you anymore? Yeah. Or what circumstance can separate?